This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Charlotte Beyer, author of Wealth Management Unwrapped. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. I'm happy to be here. So we last spoke about Wealth Management Unwrapped back in 2014 in December, I think. Uh, and you've just released an updated version of your book. Now, how is wealth management today different than it was three years ago? Oh boy, very different. <clears throat> On at least two or three fronts. Uh, first, uh, we're now um, seeing an increasingly active investor who is much more knowledgeable about what they want and what they fear. Second front is the advisor community recognizes now wealth management is really about the individual and not just the investments. And then on the third front there's the whole issue of fiduciary and that's become a word that now everybody says and I've always said that fiduciary is the equivalent of the five-syllable word Yes, but it really means trust. And so those three areas of change, just in three years, are staggering to me. Uh, one of the things that I keep hearing a lot about these days is the uh, emergence of wealth tech or, or, uh -huh. or the digitization of wealth management mm -hmm. as a specialized area of fintech. Mm -hmm. Now, based on your perspective, shaped by more, more than 40 years of experience initially on Wall Street and then with the Institute for Private Investors, uh, how do you think uh, digitization has impacted investors and advisors? Enormously. Enormously. And the term that is often used in my industry of wealth management is robo-advisors. And we see the big firms. Um, in the uh, advisor world, offering automatic investment allocation and so on. But it's much, much bigger than that. That's going to happen, and that's going to happen in all of the registered investment advisory firms, and it's going to happen with the big firms and so on. But what's much more uh, meaningful to me is to see the increased use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and then um, even going beyond that where an individual can find out what they need to be looking at almost automatically. There'd be prompts and so on. Just like the Internet of Things, you walk down the street and your phone lights up and says, oh, you were looking for this and it's right in this store and it's on sale. Mm -hmm. I see the same thing happening in wealth management and it's going to happen um, much sooner than we think, and it's going to be driven by the enormous interest by millennials in a more meaningful way to use their money. I'd love to come back in a bit to the question of millennials, but to start with what you said about robo-advisors, uh, which robo-advisor should high net worth investors and advisors uh, be paying attention to? And do you believe that robo-advisors will be as disruptive uh, as Google and Facebook have been to uh, uh, the media and advertising industries? 
or will they be absorbed and acquired by traditional wealth management companies? Gee, I wish I knew the definitive answer to that. Um, I think it could be the latter, but I believe that the spirit of innovation will mean that it's going to be incredibly disruptive. Um, the old line firms may acquire a betterment or a wealth front, and they have acquired some of the smaller ones, but there'll be a new innovator or a new idea coming up. and. If the culture in the old line firm doesn't change and really know how to use it and keep advancing it, then it really won't be, the value won't be realized. People like it. Just, just the way when I pay my bills, I wouldn't think of writing a check. I do it online. Everybody does. So I think that's somewhat the basis for my feeling that the robo-advisors in a larger definition are not only disruptive, but here to stay, and will be continually enhanced. I remember the early edition of your book had a lot of very useful advice on how to evaluate and select human advisors. Uh, do you have any ad advice on how investors should evaluate robo-advisors? I do. And just as in the early days of hedge funds, when a hedge fund manager would say, well, we have this great black box and you can't see inside it because you wouldn't understand it, but look at our record. I'm afraid that in the robo-world, investors can be similarly fooled if they're not careful. So in my book, I have a list of questions to ask. You know, where are your logarithms coming from? What, what are your uh, sources for uh, the machine learning or the AI you're using to tell me what I should be doing? And when an automatic rebalancing takes place, for instance, um, what if it's wrong? Because we all know that predicting markets is, is not a science. So this will be an interesting evolution to see when the next market dip comes, what happens if your robo was a little bit wrong? <laughs> so so that, that sort of begs the question, what advantages do robo-advisors have over human advisors and vice versa? Because uh, as there seems to be a shift from active to passive investment strategies, who do you think will perform better in this environment? The active versus passive debate is the overlay on all of it, as you so rightly point out. And for most investors, um, it makes much better sense to have some combination of passive, whether, and it's not passive, passive, it's ETFs and it's index, and there'll be yet another product, um, I'm sure, that will take it even further. So the advantages of the robo, in my mind, are the same advantages of technology in any area. I can turn the air conditioning on in my home when I'm 50 miles from home. Uh, that's an advantage. It's the same thing with the robo. I can alter my investment goals as life changes for me. And in the robo world, that will be known and anticipated, asked about. In the world of humans, humans are busy doing other things. They may forget to ask me something that the robos will. Now, one advantage that the digital wealth management platforms offer is their appeal to millennials, which you mm. mentioned before. Uh, now in the past, my impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, 
is that advisors often focused on baby boomers who are either retired or close to retirement because understandably they have more money than, than millennials who are at the beginning of their careers. So how should older advisors who are used to dealing with older <laughs> investors as clients, how should they engage with millennials who are more tech savvy? Uh, how can uh, registered investment advisors or RIAs as they are called become better informed about technology and innovation? <laughs> well, I'm not going to be very optimistic on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, as a baby boomer myself, um, I'm a technophile, it's not easy to learn new tricks. <laughs> and the millennials do it intuitively. They've grown up with this. Right. They've grown up with their devices. The other major challenge is the baby boomer RIA is much more comfortable with the norms and the culture, the language, the method of communication of the counterpart in their co their cohort, so to speak. Millennials, I believe, want something different as they have over time. They always want to do something different from their parents, right? Mm -hmm. But it's even more pronounced today because they see the efficiency of different ways of communicating. They, you, you wouldn't ever dare send an email to a millennial. They don't read their emails. You wouldn't <laughs> dare um, have a three-hour meeting with them. But it's too long. Um, so the millennials, I believe, will be the f driving force and the baby boomer advisor uh, will do well to hire enough millennials in their own firm so that it becomes a mix of and, and a diverse group not the team, not the gray hair speaking. And then just to get the millennials in the room, they're the children of current clients. They're the grandchildren of current clients. Ignore them at your peril. One of the biggest challenges that millennials face is learning about managing wealth, especially if they happen to be born in well-off families. And one of the chapters in your book uh, deals with whether being born in a wealthy family is a blessing or a curse. Mm -hmm. uh, is it one or the other or both? And what should parents do about it? It can be both. It doesn't have to be. One of the pieces in that chapter talks about it's mighty hard for the acorn to grow in the shadow of the mighty oak. Hungarian proverb and in my experience many children who've grown up um, with enormous wealth or substantial wealth operate at somewhat believe it or not and it sounds crazy at a disadvantage because they haven't learned the joy of struggle the joy of reaching beyond your grasp the parents who allow that um, self-sufficiency and working at a job, not just going on a philanthropy vacation, but really working and struggling to accomplish something, those children and those parents see the incredible rewards later on. In terms of learning about money and learning about wealth management, the overarching trend is millennials want money to have meaning. And as Charlie Ellis so beautifully put it, the way you spend your money is the ultimate manifestation of your most deeply held values. Right. 
Millennials get that much more intuitively. They're not as materialistic or commercially, you know, thrown off and lured by all the things. They want meaning and they want purpose. It's, it's important for, for Well, it's also, I was going to say, it's why impact investing is on such an enormous tear right now. And not the false siren of doing good by your investing. It's, it's a much more disciplined look at how can my investments more closely align with what, my, what I value. Uh, I've heard it described as sort of the two two-pocket mentality versus the one-pocket mentality. Mm -hmm. It used to be that one pocket was for your business and the other pocket was for philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, I think people are starting to realize that it's all the same pocket. Yeah. Well, it's equivalent to that double bottom line concept people talk about in business. Um, you may be making a fortune and your bottom line might look fantastic, but if you haven't focused on the other aspects of business, like the motivation and engagement of your employees, the motivation and engagement and loyalty of your customers, it's a flash in the pan. It's not going to last. Exactly right. Now, it, it's important, I think, for parents to teach both boys and girls about managing money, but especially girls because uh, developing financial skills is so important uh, to becoming leaders as they grow. So what advice would you offer to young girls and young women about how they should manage money, especially at a time of their life when they may not have a lot to invest? Well, there are lots of apps out there and firms that are happy to help them, and I think some of them are doing a, a very good job on combining education with investing. But I, I've heard often it said that uh, the best way that a man becomes a feminist is by having a daughter. And the moment that daughter begins to grow up and the dad sees the good and the bad of what's going on out there in our culture, in our media, um, he becomes a feminist, a male champion. Uh, so women are increasingly feeling their own power. but. Mm. Culturally, it's going to take time for that courage and that confidence to be full throttle. And I was very blessed and I'm very grateful that I learned that early on in my career. Uh, but not every young woman does. Um, I have young women I mentor who still encounter horrendous issues in the workplace. But learning about wealth management um, is something that's probably going to happen sooner than the incredible cultural change we might need. Are there any tools that you would recommend to help uh, young women uh, to, to manage their wealth better? Well, I think the tools are out there in the uh, world of apps and so on. Um, I think that there is a company that I don't um, I don't like to mention names because I haven't done the due diligence, but there are companies out there that actually you can take $5 a week and put it in and you get you buy stocks. Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, companies that not only are saying come and be a client, but they're saying we're going to teach you. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty easy to find on Google and you can take a look at them. So there are plenty of tools. The question is whether a young woman takes the time to do it. And my book is trying to encourage people to realize they don't have to become 
a technical expert. They merely need to say, I am the CEO of my wealth, even if it's modest. And I need to step up and make sure I know who I'm hiring. And common sense is very important here. Uh, you have a chapter, a new chapter in your book uh, about uh, women and, and their wallets. Uh, so do you think women investors face different challenges in managing wealth than men do? And if so, what can they do about it? Well, the first is more of a scientific challenge. Uh, women, we, tend to live longer than our spouses and doesn't so show any signs of changing. Um, but the other huge change is that women now represent, in many cases, the primary breadwinner in the family, and there's certainly more two-income households. And in a recent study by Columbia and Barnard uh, that Andrea Moffat-Turner talks about in her book, The Power of the Purse, she says that uh, almost two-thirds of the women are the, consider themselves the CFO of their own family. The piece in the women with wallets that I emphasize, though, is women want to feel comfortable with whom they're working with. And so I give a list of questions and concerns. So if a firm they're interviewing doesn't distinguish between the different types of investing and goals that different women might have, a newly widowed woman is not shouldn't be, certainly, stereotyped right in there with a young career woman who's single. So, and nor should an advisor uh, be so nosy as to say, well, do you plan to get married and have children? I mean, who knows? <laughs> well, how, how do you personally keep up with all the innovation that is going on in wealth management? I'm an avid reader. And I have all my social media alerts coming to me, uh, besides just the regular daily news. And then there are a lot of very smart people who blog and write and are looking over the horizon at the future. Um, the other way I stay current is I love to stay involved with younger women, primarily, in my because of my foundation, Principal Quest. It, it's supporting, its mission is to support women in innovative mentoring and educational formats. So by staying in touch with these younger women in their 20s and 30s, I am always struck by how much I have to learn, how they view the world, how they look at their wealth, how they look at relationships. So that's an enormous boon for me on a personal level to stay in touch with these women. Um, I just had a big celebration last weekend where 54 of the women who'd been on a Principal Quest retreat came to a big party and we, they brought their spouses or boyfriends and partners and so on. We danced, we had fun, but at the core of that is young and old need to learn from each other. And what's happened in, and men and women as well, but what's happened, I'm afraid, in our society is we've become so polarized and, so, and, and the diversity of age and ethnicity is so vital to a common understanding and progress on wealth management or in any area. So I have one last question. There's so much innovation going on and disruption going on in wealth management. What do you think will change because of all this innovation and what will remain the same? 
I believe the balance of power that has been so skewed toward the provider of the product or advice will tip and maybe tip too far in the other way. Um, the metaphor I use of the CEO of My Wealth Inc., um, we all know CEOs who are too autocratic, don't listen, don't hire the right people. So if that happens where the investor gains too much power and, be, and is not self-aware enough to realize the need to have balance, that would be uh, one big change. But I think, in sum, it's going to be technology and its incredible gift to having the human brain and the way we interact much more uh, incredibly strong in the areas that we need it to be strong in, whether it's planning, which is huge, setting goals, specifying outcomes, and in the end, the joy is that my wealth, your wealth, is really something that should bring joy. And it's not about the money. It's about what we do in our life to bring that joy. Charlotte, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. You're welcome. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.